0: Thanks for listening to the Chapel Podcast. At the Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. So go ahead and take your Bibles this morning, and we're going to open up to our next section of Romans. The next section of Romans. This morning, we embark on a new chapter. And that is Romans chapter 8. And so uh, this is the first time I've ever spent an entire year, of course it hasn't been a year, going through a book, marching through. And it's been a tremendous blessing to me. I pray that it's been a blessing to you. And for the kids that are sitting in here, I know that you've been uh, enduring through a lot of that. And so thank you. Romans is not necessarily the easiest book in the world to be able to dissect, but you're in it, and so thank you. Um, I got a story to share about Casey, just a little, little later on in the message that was an encouragement to me this past week. Uh, but with that being said, there's some of you in here that are English people. You, you love grammar. You, uh, Victoria is one of them. And whenever I have an issue, I send it over to Victoria or even Alina and, and even Tim. Um, I send it over to Tim, and he helps me out with things. And so, and so with that being said, you have, the, you have three different uh, levels when it comes to intensity of adjective and adverbs. You have the positive degree, comparative degree superlative degree. How many of you knew that? I did many years ago. Uh, But with that being said, you have the positive degree. It's like the word big. And then you have the comparative degree, which is like the word bigger, and then the superlative degree, which is the word biggest. And with some things, it's easy to be able to apply that to those three labels. So take the cities within the research triangle, for example. You've got Durham, you've got Raleigh, and you've got Chapel Hill. The research triangle, we understand, is made up of those three cities. Within those three cities, we have several bedroom communities. You've got um, Holly Springs. You've got a Mebane, or Actually, Mebane's not really part of it. You've got uh, Morrisville and some others as well. And then in the middle of all of that, you have the Research Triangle Park. In addition, within those three communities, those three cities, you have three colleges. You have Duke and Durham. You have NC State and Raleigh. And then you have UNC right here in Chapel Hill. But if you were to take the superlative comparative and, and, and the positive degrees and break that down, what you could say is you have a big city, which is is more like a town, and that is Chapel Hill. There's roughly, right now, about 59,000 people that live in Chapel Hill, and I believe that that's when the students are in session. I believe they count that as being part of that 59,000. So that's the big city. The, the bigger city, which is Durham. Anybody guess how many people live in Durham right now? 275,000 people live in Durham, and then you have the biggest, which would be Raleigh, and that's 470,000 people. Now, if we were to move our discussion over towards the Bible from the cities of the Research Triangle to the books of the Bible, my question would be this. Which book of the Bible would you say is the greatest? Some of you are thinking this is a trick question because the Bible, all of it is great. And it is. But more specifically, which chapter would you deem to be the greatest chapter? What about the greatest verse in all of Scripture? Some of you may say John 3.16. Some of you may say some others as well. Now, of course, before we ask this question, we have to define our purpose as to why we are asking this question. Are you defining the greatest by the length of the book, the chapter, or the verse? What about the most theologically profound or perhaps the most famous out of all of them? Well, the Bible is objective in many ways, applying subjective measurements like the greatest is far more difficult, and of course, it is a matter which cannot be and need not be decided when it comes to the Word of God. Every reader has a different opinion based upon those answers, but if we were to define our goal in answering this question regarding the greatest chapter as being the chapter that has the most profound and theological truth to mankind, there are many that would hold Romans 8 as being the greatest chapter in all of Scripture." which is based upon that criteria. A man by the name of Charles Trumbull, the editor of the Sunday School Times, describes Romans 8 this way. The 8th of Romans has become peculiarly precious to me. Beginning with no condemnation, ending with no separation, and in between no defeat, this wondrous chapter sets forth the gospel and plan of salvation, the life of freedom and victory, the hopelessness of the natural man, and the righteousness of the born again the indwelling of the Christ and the Holy Spirit, the resurrection of the body and the blessed hope of Christ's return, the working together of all things for our good in every tense of the Christian life, past, present, and future, and the glorious climactic song of triumph, no separation in time or eternity from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is it about Romans 8 that causes so many different pastors and theologians to refer to it as the greatest chapter in all of Scripture? Does this mean that all the other chapters of the Bible are less important? Absolutely not. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. But to fully grasp this statement regarding Romans 8, we must compare what we've learned so far in Scripture regarding man's greatest need, and that is the gospel. Many of you that have been with me on our whole entire journey, you understand that the book of Romans is written by the Apostle Paul and is writing it as a way of introducing himself to the church of Rome, uh, as well as really talking about this gospel, uh, this doctrine of the gospel. Romans reveals man's ultimate problem, which is sin, and God's judgment upon sin. It reveals the ultimate solution to the problem of sin, and that is Jesus Christ. And it shows mankind how to live through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're talking about in Romans chapter 6, and seven uh, so far, but all three chapters, six, seven, and eight, deal with this subject of sanctification. Sanctification is this process of becoming more like Christ. We've said it every single week, and we'll continue to drill it down. Positional sanctification occurs at the moment of salvation. It's when we are positionally sanctified. we no longer at war with God because our sins have been imputed, or the righteousness of Christ has been imputed upon us So we're no longer looked at as being sinners in the eyes of God. And then you have progressive sanctification, which is what we are experiencing now as Christians. It's this continuous process of being more like Christ. but We have not uh, achieved or received ultimate, complete sanctification that occurs at the moment we go into heaven. Now, with all of that being said, Romans 6 and 7 are dealing with this subject of sin and the law. Romans 6 makes it clear that because of Christ, Christians are no longer underneath this power of sin. In Romans 7, Paul specifically deals with the believer's relationship to God's moral law. The law is there to show mankind his need of a Savior, but when someone receives Christ, salvation does not remove them from the presence of sin because man still possesses a sinful nature. Mankind will still sin on this side of eternity. So in essence, Paul says in Romans 6 and 7 that because man died both to sin... In Romans 6, as well as to the law in Romans 7, we have a new identity in Christ. But if Paul was to stop at Romans 7, we are left with hope, but our understanding of that hope is somewhat confused. See, we looked at it last week. Romans 6 says that we are dead to the power of sin, but Romans 7 describes this spiritual battle that takes place. As we looked at last week, it's really a difficult passage to be able to fully grasp, but basically what it's saying is our spirit wants to do what's right, but we are constantly battling against our flesh because our flesh is still within this humanness and it still has this sinful nature. I haven't shared this with too many people yet, um, because to be honest with you, it's, it's, it's something that I've personally struggled with, uh, but I've got to leave it up to God. My son, uh, he's four years old. Cason is four years old, and he's sitting in here. Very good job behaving, buddy, by the way. Thank you, Aunt Lauren and TJ, for watching him. Uh, but he's been in church, obviously, since he's been born. So he's heard this word, the gospel. He's heard salvation. He's heard all these things multiple different times. And so several months ago, he, he asked I want to get saved. I want to, you know, I want to talk about the Bible. I say, all right, why don't we talk through some things here? Uh, you're four. I couldn't comprehend what all that meant at the age of four. And so we spent several months continuing to talk through it. And I talked to my wife about it. And she's like, Brandon, it's a childlike faith. I said, I understand that. But I don't want him simply praying a prayer, thinking that that is salvation and not fully understanding what he's doing. And so it was the day before Mother's Day, the Saturday morning. He comes downstairs completely on his own without any kind of prompting. And he asked point blank. I want to get I want to go to heaven. I want to get saved. And so I again tried to talk him through it. He understood everything that I was saying. He's not going to fully grasp what sanctification is. I don't fully grasp all of this yet. But he he knew what the basics were. I said, "Okay, buddy, why, why don't we why don't we just we'll pray together, buddy? And if you really mean what you want to do, why don't we we'll just pray together?" So I started to pray and he cut me off and he prayed himself. He said, Dear Jesus, forgive me my sins. Please come into my heart and save me. I want to go to heaven. And, I, and I, at that point, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't cry very often, but I walked out of the room and I cried for two reasons. Number one is because I was excited, but also number two, I wanted it to be genuine. I didn't want something. I didn't, at four years old, I have a hard time grasping whether a person could truly, fully understand it. But on this side, I, I don't know what goes on in his heart. I have to leave it up to God. and I, I just leave it up to him. And so I prayed with him. And I, I, ever since then, you could just see different signs and evidences. And I, and I pray that it was genuine. And, well, and I need your prayer with me as we have wisdom to be able to help him to be more like Christ even at such a young age. And I pray that it was a genuine thing and he continues to walk with the Lord. But last week, he was struggling with something. I, I don't know. He did something. I don't know. And, and Eileen um, got on to him about it, as she should as a parent. And Eileen told me that he said, mommy, I don't know what it is, but Satan keeps trying to get me to do stuff. And I don't want to do it. I just keep battling, like, he, like using these words. I'm like, what is this coming from? He's got Romans 7 already he's whipping out. Um, so anyway, like, and that's something we can look at and, and we can go through. It's like, all right, is there any hope after reading Romans chapter 7? And this is where Romans chapter 8 comes into play. The information that Paul gives us in Romans 8 is so full of hope. This is why many refer to Romans 8 as the greatest chapter, because of the hope that it contains. And I'm not saying it is the greatest. I'm just saying this is why so many people refer to it as the greatest. Dr. Kenneth Boa describes Romans 8 this way. If Romans 8 is the greatest chapter in the Bible, it is because it tells the believer that he or she is a child of God whose life is totally overshadowed by the protective hand of a loving Heavenly Father. While the last two verses in the chapter are profound, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is verse 28 that so succinctly applies that love to the life that we have been left to live on earth. In verse 28, it says that God has a purpose in everything that happens to those who have done what Paul described in Romans 6 and 7. Throwing away the crutches of pleasure and pride could leave one vulnerable to pain and suffering. But Romans 8.28 says, that vulnerability has been replaced by confidence and the purposes of God. Everything works together for the, for the believer's good. So what Paul gives us in Romans 8 is a description of this new life in the spirit. A commentator states this, All would agree that Romans 8 is the greatest chapter in the Bible. Many would go further and claim that it is the greatest Than most, still others, because of the message of the new way of life in the Spirit, believe it is the greatest of all. And so, with that being said, if you have not done so, if you take your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 this morning. As we discussed last week in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25, there is a spiritual battle that takes place. The things that we want to do, we don't do. And the things that we don't want to do, we do. And that's what Paul says. I mean, he was a strong Christian when he wrote that particular uh, portion of the Bible. Some say that he was saved for 25 years when he wrote that. But there's a spiritual battle that takes place. And and when I think about it, it makes me think of this story of an old brick mason. This is way back in the day. He was building um, um, some things on top of the building and he was finished. And he realized that he had some bricks left over. Well, then he put an arm bar with a pulley outside, and he was going to lower those bricks down through a little bucket. And so he took that bucket, he put the bricks in that bucket, and he hung it on that pulley. But when he realized, as he was holding the other end of that rope, he went down there and tied the rope up. He realized that as he untied that rope, that that bucket of bricks was actually heavier than he was. And as he untied that bucket, he was pulled all the way up to the top of that pulley. And as he was on his way up, that bucket of bricks came down and hit him in the shoulder and just jabbed him hard. Well, he realized, okay, my shoulder's not broken. It's not out of socket. And so he continued to hold on to that rope. As he got to the very top, his finger jammed into the pulley. If that's ever happened to you, it hurts really bad. Well, out of reaction and not understanding what was going on, as that bucket fell down, it hit the bottom, and the bottom fell out of that bucket, letting all the bricks come out. Well, now the bucket is lighter than what he is, and so the bucket goes back up, and on his way up, it hits the man in the shins on his way back down. And as the man comes back down, he lands on that pile of bricks that flew out of that bucket and, and, and hurts himself when those jagged points to that brick. Let's go of that rope out of the reaction. And as he let go of the rope, the bucket came back down and hit him in the head. That's kind of what I feel like was going on with our spiritual life. It's like we go up and then, bam, this, the, you know, our sin brings us back down. And we go back up and we struggle back and forth. But we enter into Romans 8, and Paul gives us this hope. Romans chapter 8 is the climax on this section of sanctification It answers the questions raised about the law and the flesh. The main topic of Romans 8 is this work of the Holy Spirit within this sanctification process. On January the 6th, 1941, President Franklin Roosevelt addressed the Congress on the state of the war in Europe, and much of what he had said has been forgotten to this day. But at the close of his address, he said that he looked forward to a world founded upon four essential human freedoms, and he named those freedoms. The freedom of speech, the freedom of worship, the freedom from want, and the freedom from fear. Tomorrow we celebrate Memorial Day. Memorial Day is a day of celebration in which we celebrate those that have given their life for our freedom. But in Romans chapter 8, Paul gives us really this declaration of freedom. So if you could stand with me in Romans chapter 8, we're going to read the first four verses here. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. There is therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ, Jesus, who walked not after the flesh but after the Spirit. But the law of the flesh or the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. In the entire chapter of Romans chapter 8, Paul gives us four spiritual freedoms that we can enjoy as Christians because of our union with Christ. The entire chapter focuses on this theme of our new life in the Spirit, and over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to observe these four freedoms as we experience as Christians the power that we have through the Holy Spirit. The title of the message this morning is part one of this new life in the Spirit, and that is freedom from condemnation. Thank you. you may be seated. Paul begins this chapter, verse 1, with this phrase, there is therefore. Whenever you see the word therefore in Scripture, you have to ask yourselves, what is it there for? The word therefore speaks of the consequences of truth that really occur from the previous sentences. And usually when we see the word therefore, it is speaking about the truth that was given directly before the uh, preceding passage. And in this case, it would be Romans chapter 7, verse 25. But what Paul is doing here is something far bigger than just connecting Romans chapter 7 and Romans chapter 8 together. What he's doing, he's connecting everything that he spoke on in Romans chapters 1 through 7 to what he's going to speak on in Romans chapter 8. See, in Romans chapter 7, we see in uh, verse—sorry, Romans chapter 3, verse 20, it says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall be no flesh justified in this sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Here in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Paul gives the therefore of no condemnation. And the key to this no condemnation status is what Paul says following the there is therefore no condemnation. Paul says that there is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. He's emphasizing this reality that we have regarding our freedom. The reality that we are completely forgiven and justified by faith alone in Christ alone. It is important to note that in the King James Version, some of your versions may be different than this, and so you may not see this, but in the King James Version of verse 1, it says, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. At first glance, Paul seems to say that there were some sort of requirements that are needed in order to become a follower of Christ. You must be walking in the Spirit in order to be truly saved. That's not what Paul is doing here. Matter of fact, some of the earliest manuscripts don't even have this phrase. Does that mean that this Bible is not reliable? No, 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 it doesn't mean that at all. It simply to mean that this is just an interpolation from verse 4. All that to say that justification is only through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. There are no conditions that need to be met when it comes to our salvation as far as us doing things. But before we go any further, we must focus on those two words, in Christ. Paul loves to use those two words. matter of fact, in every single one of Paul's writings, he uses that phrase more than once, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. But what Paul does, what does he mean by that phrase, in Christ? In order to fully understand what he means for believers, we have to look at this story of Noah. A lot of the Old Testament really was, was pointing towards the Savior, right? It was pointing towards the future Messiah, and God used those opportunities to get people's hearts and minds focused towards that. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 14, that the ark was pitched within and without pitch. In other words, the ark was completely sealed, and there was nothing going to get into or out of the ark. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 7, verse 6, that once Noah's family, his entire family, was inside that ark, the Lord shut him in. At that point, Noah and his family were completely secured by the wrath of God while they were in that ark. What it meant for Noah and his family to be in the ark is what it means for us to be in Christ. In Christ, we are placed in this sphere of protection where God's wrath upon sinful mankind cannot reach us. We are secure in Christ, and there is no more condemnation for sin. As Paul transitions into verse 2, he begins with the word for. The word for introduces to the readers why there was no condemnation for the believers. Because we are in Christ, the Spirit replaced the law that produced only sin and death with a new law that produces life, which brings us to our first point here this morning, and that is this. The law no longer claims Christians. The law no longer claims Christians. In Romans chapter 7, we discovered that before Christ, all of mankind was underneath this new claim or this claim of the law. Because mankind is unable to keep the law, the law claims that eternal punishment and separation from God is inevitable. This is the penalty that all mankind faces before the redemption of Christ is placed in their life. If you flip back to Romans chapter 7 and verse 5, it says this. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of the sins which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. In verse 13, was then that which is good made to death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. In verse 2, Paul states in Romans chapter 8, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is in reference to God's moral law that man is unable to keep. We've been talking about this for the past several chapters. Paul is not stating that the law itself is sin and death. He spent all of chapter 7 making sure that his listeners understood that. Paul states that because mankind cannot keep the law, the law itself reveals the sin and death of man. What Paul says in verse 2 is that when one receives Christ, they become in Christ. When one becomes in Christ, the spirit then replaces the law that produced only sin and death with a new law that produces life. This is the law of faith, which is the gospel. If you think about it this way, uh, let's picture my wedding ring. I'll use that as an example. If I was to drop this wedding ring by the law of gravity, it would fall to the floor. There's nothing that this ring can do in and of itself to be able to prevent that from happening. But if I was to reach out my hand, as I'm doing now, and I was to grab that ring and lift it back up, what, what's happening? Does that mean that the law of gravity is no longer applies? It absolutely applies. It just means that the strength of my hand is stronger than the law of gravity upon this ring. When we receive Christ, now the difference here is that the ring doesn't have a free will. We do have a will. But that's how it works in our spiritual life. When we receive Christ as our Savior, the Spirit comes inside of us, resides inside of us. We are still underneath this law. We are still underneath, what I mean by that is is this sinful nature. But the Spirit and the strength of the Spirit and the new life that we have as a Spirit overcomes the sinful struggle that we have. Are we still going to sin? Yes, but through the grace and the working and the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, we are going to become stronger so that sin will become less and less of a hold on us upon our lives. Paul says in verse 2 that we have been made free, which indicates that the law no longer has claim upon us. When something has a claim upon someone, it means that they have the rights or ownership to that person. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13, And whom you also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also after ye have believed, you were sealed with that, the Holy Spirit of promise. So we see here in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13, that when we place our faith and trust in Christ and in Christ alone, the Holy Spirit comes inside of us and he seals us. The seal that's, that's mentioning here is, is, is oftentimes what they use back in those time periods, time periods after that, to mark ownership upon a particular property. For example, whenever a king or somebody would, would do an official decree, they would seal that letter with the seal of whatever their emblem was within that kingdom to show the people that were receiving that 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 is property of that kingdom. When the Holy Spirit comes inside of us, it is a seal upon us indicating to Satan, to sin, to the law, that we now belong to Christ because we are now in Christ. Someone puts it this way. When you, which law you operate by determines whether you live in victory or defeat. The law of sin is like gravity and inherently pulls you down no matter how high you jump, but the law of spirit overrides gravity. It's like climbing on board an airplane where the laws of aerodynamics apply. You cannot get rid of the law of gravity, but you can transcend it. The spirit's law transcends the law of sin so that sin no longer controls the agenda, which leads us to our next point. Point number two, the law no longer condemns Christians. Look down at verse three. For what the law could not do. Could not do what? The law could not deliver sinners from its penalty, which is eternal death and separation. In addition, the law cannot make a person righteous. We talked about this last week. Galatians chapter three, verse 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For there had been a law given which could have given life. Verily righteousness should have been by the law. The point that Paul is making here And in Galatians chapter 3 verse 21 is that the law reveals man's sinfulness and need for salvation, but it does not save man. The law simply pointed to the promises that were given by God's gracious promise. If the law could have provided righteousness and eternal life, then there would be no gracious promise. The law cannot save us. Paul goes on to say in verse 3 that the law could not produce righteousness and holiness in man because it was weak through the flesh. Meaning... That because of the sinful corruption of unregenerate man, the law in and of itself was powerless to produce righteousness. The law only brings condemnation. Paul continues in verse 3 with this promise of hope. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemns sin in the flesh. Now within this verse, there are several truths regarding to this nature and character of Christ that we have to make clear. Notice what Paul says. He says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. He doesn't say Christ came... Uh, in sinful flesh, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Paul does not say that Christ has a sinful nature. To fully understand this, flip back to, hold your fingers here, to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to look at probably one of the most clearest examples of the incarnation of Christ. And that is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Paul says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. It was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross. The word incarnation means in the flesh. The incarnation of Jesus is so important when it comes to this doctrine of redemption of mankind Christ had to become a man in order to satisfy the wrath of God but even though Jesus was God in the flesh he did not know sin Christ took upon him the self the outward appearance of sinful flesh but he was completely without sin 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 says for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be the righteousness of God in him So as Paul mentions back here in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, God's condemnation against sin was fully poured out on the sinful flesh of Christ. So since Christ already suffered and died for the sins of the redeemed, the law no longer condemns believers. This word condemnation only occurs three times in the entire New Testament, and all three times they occur here in the book of Romans. It refers to the verdict of the guilty and the penalty that the verdict demands. But since the penalty was already paid by Christ, mankind is no longer underneath this condemnation of the law. The law of double jeopardy states that a man cannot be tried twice for the same crime. And since Jesus Christ already paid the penalty, and since he, we as believers are in Christ, the law no longer condemns the believers. I was on Facebook this morning, and I was flipping through some things, and a pastor friend of mine shared this quote by Paul David Tripp. He says, no need to wonder what you have to do to get God's acceptance, Jesus purchased your acceptance on the cross. The law no longer lays claim upon us and no longer condemns us. And finally, number three, the law no longer controls Christians. Look at verse four, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. As we mentioned before, the law can entail many different things. You've got the Mosaic law. The ceremonial aspects that go with that, is God talking about that? Or is is Paul talking about God's moral law? What are the righteous requirements of the law and how is it to be fulfilled in us? As a way of review, we understand that we have the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law was given to the nation of Israel as really part of that covenantal community that God had between them and the nation of Israel. You had the ceremonial aspects of the law, and then you had the governmental aspects or the social aspects of the law. The ceremonial aspects of the law no longer apply to us. It was completed uh, once Christ died on the cross for us. That was, now we're in the age of grace. So the ceremonial aspects of the law no longer apply. Praise the Lord, we can have pork loin for lunch today. When it comes to the actual social requirements of the law, that was transitioned to the government. We see that in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. But God's moral law obviously still applies today. And that's really given us into a, a, you know, majority of it is given to us in an outline form and through the Ten Commandments. As we saw here in the New Testament, Jesus Christ answers, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, and soul. And your neighbor as yourself is the second greatest commandment. If you were to take the Ten Commandments and break them down, the first four fulfill loving God with all of your heart, mind, and soul, the last six deal with your interpersonal uh, relationships with others, loving others with all of yourself. So when it comes to this law, what is Christ referring to? Once Christ came to earth and fulfilled the law, the old covenant was no longer applicable because the new covenant took its place. The new covenant being the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and as a result of the finished work of Christ, the ceremonial aspects of the law no longer apply. Paul continues in verse four, though, and he says, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Again, this statement is not a statement of duty to earn salvation, but a statement of fact based upon the status of the heart. A genuine Christian will walk after the Spirit, and a non-Christian will walk in the flesh. The word walk refers to a lifestyle. The the choices that we make on a consistent basis, the things that we have a desire to do, what is it matching up with? Is it directly going against the Word of God? And if you have a desire for that, then the Bible says we have to check our own hearts to see whether or not we are a genuine follower of Christ. So all in all, what Paul is saying in verse 4 is that the believers live a righteous life not in the power of the law, but in the power of the Spirit. The indwelling Holy Spirit of the believers enables Christians to walk in obedience to God's will. In the Holy Spirit, we have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the Spirit-led Christian life, as he yields himself over to the Lord, will experience the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So how can we be encouraged through this first section here? First off, we can understand that through the freedom that we have in this spirit, we are no longer underneath condemnation. We live as free people. We no longer face the power and the penalty of sin. But as we struggle with our sin, the more we yield ourselves over as instruments of righteousness to the Holy Spirit and allow the Holy Spirit to work in our life, the stronger we will become in overcoming that sinful struggle in our life. It doesn't happen overnight. Everybody grows at different rates, but the key is we are yielding ourselves over to the power of the Spirit. And as I do this every single week, I want to give an opportunity to share this hope that we have in Christ. The Bible says that because of our sin, we are all separated. We are all born in separation between us and God. But God loved us so much, John three sixteen, "...for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son." Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Because of Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ, we have hope. So what is required of us? Well, first off, nothing. The Bible says that if we repent of our sins, we repent of the lifestyle that we were living in without Christ, and we call upon God to be our Savior, we will be saved. And if you have never done that here this morning, if you're watching online, I invite you to do that here with us today.